0: Well, over the past 10 years, there have been some quite terrifying natural disasters in our world, haven't there? I mean, last year we saw the horrendous tsunami that swept through Japan and claimed the lives of 20,000 people. Uh, I found some pictures um, before and after shots of some of the coastal areas uh, of Japan that were hit by the tsunami. So this is the before shot and this is the after shot. I mean, it's quite terrifying, isn't it, to see all of those homes just swept away by that massive amount of water that came through. But jump back a few more years, back to 2004, and it was the tsunami that hit Indonesia. Somewhere close to 300,000 people were killed. Uh, The water hit with such force that huge boats were taken kilometres inland and dumped there by the waves. So what do you think when you see that kind of suffering? What is it that goes through your head when you see those kinds of natural disasters? Well, the natural response for a lot of people is to say, where does God fit into all this? I mean, with both of those tsunamis, uh, there were news stories where victims and journalists alike were saying, why did God let this happen? And it's a reasonable question to ask, isn't it? I mean, if we believe in a God who rules over everything, is in control of the whole world, if you believe in a God who is all-powerful, then it's logical to ask, why did he let this happen? One of the things that seems to happen when there are disasters like this that happen in our world is that people want to suggest that it's actually God's punishment that it must be something that those people have done wrong. That was certainly the case with both of those tsunamis. There were people who came out very quickly afterwards and said it must be God's judgement on them. Uh, a similar, similar thing happened with the bushfires that we had in Victoria just a few years ago. There were people who were saying that was God's judgement on Australia, that God caused that to happen because of the sinfulness of the people. It's a nice, neat equation, isn't it? Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to people who must obviously deserve it. And I think that there's a lot of people who think that way. That's just the kind of equation that you've got naturally in the back of your mind. If you see bad things happen, well, it must be that you've done something wrong. Well, this morning we're looking at a psalm where the writer wants to question that equation. There's been some kind of natural disaster or some kind of disaster in Israel. Lives have been lost and the nation is in turmoil. And the writer of the psalm wants to know why. Why has God let this happen? Now, when the psalm begins, if you've got it there in front of you, you probably notice that the first few verses, the first seven or so verses, are, are really, really a psalm of praise. Now, the writer's wanting to talk about how God has acted in the past, how God has dealt with Israel in the past, and he wants to say that when they went into battle, they knew that the victories that they won were because God was with them, because God brought about those victories. Uh, he knew it wasn't their strength that had brought about the victory or the size of their army or the quality of their, 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 uh, their battle gear. Uh, look at what it says in verse 3. It was not by their swords, he's talking about his forefathers, it was not by their swords that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your faith, for you loved them. But it's not just what they've heard about God in the past. The writer also can say for himself that we've seen you at work. Verse 4, he talks about the present tense. So verses 1 to 3 is talking about what's happened in the past, in their history, but verse 4, You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. They know that their success has only been because of what God has done for them. As I said, it it kind of starts out looking like it's just going to be one of those psalms of praise where the writer's wanting to thank God for all of the wonderful things that he's done, for the way that he's provided for them and cared for them and enabled them to have these victories. But then in verse 9 it changes. It goes to being a psalm of lament or even a psalm of complaint or... As someone in our Bible study group said on Thursday night, just a good old-fashioned whinge is what it starts to sound like there in verse 9. Now, what's happened seems to be pretty clear. Israel has gone into battle, but they've suffered a fairly substantial defeat. Now, we don't know exactly which incident is being talked about, but we do know that the defeat has been a crushing one. And with every verse... It sounds more curious. I mean, have a look at verse 9. He says that they've been humbled and rejected by God, that God is no longer with their armies. Verse 10, they've been forced to retreat. They've been plundered by their enemies. Verse 11, they're devoured like sheep, scattered among the nations. Verse 12, they've been sold off as slaves for a pittance. This has been some defeat. And it doesn't end there. We read in verses 13 to 16 that they're being continually taunted and mocked by the nations around them. And the writer is obviously asking the question, why? Why has God allowed this to happen? But he has one more thing to say before he's finished. When you read about Israel's suffering in the pages of the Old Testament, when you read about their enemies coming against them and defeating them, well, you're very tempted to think, well, it must be because Israel has gone astray. It must be because they've been unfaithful to God or turned their back on God in some way. So we're adopting that simple equation, aren't we? Things have gone wrong. Well, it must be because they've sinned. They're copping a hard time. Well, it must be because they've turned their back on God. And you could kind of be forgiven for thinking that because sometimes that is what happens in the Old Testament. They do reject God. They turn their back on God and God says, well, if you don't want me, I'm happy to walk away. And that's when their troubles begin. That's a regular pattern in the pages of the Old Testament. But that's where this psalm is a little bit unusual because look at what he says in verse 17. All this has happened to us now, we have not forgotten you, all been false to your covenant. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I think at that point you're very tempted to think, yeah, sure, but, but you must have done something wrong. I mean, these things couldn't have happened to you unless you had turned your back on God. But the writer really wants to drive the point home. He wants to go to great lengths to say, but we haven't sinned. He goes to great lengths to explain that their suffering hasn't come about because of anything that they've done. Uh, Look at it again, verse 17, they haven't forgotten God. Uh, They haven't been unfaithful to the covenant. Verse 18, they haven't turned their hearts away from God. They haven't strayed from the path that God wants them to walk. Now, Now make sure you don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not suggesting for a moment that we're squeaky clean, that sinless perfection is what defines us. He knows that they're sinful people who make mistakes. But what he's saying is, we haven't broken our covenant with you, God. We haven't broken our covenant with you in a way that would mean we ought to be punished like this. He's not boasting before God. He's not saying, God, we've been good, so you owe us. So the writer knows that God owes them nothing. They're in the land only because God has been gracious to them. They are God's people just because God is gracious. wasn't anything that they have done. There's nothing special about them. God doesn't owe them. So the writer's not saying, come on God, you owe us. He knows that God owes them nothing. He's just trying to understand why this has happened. When the disaster comes upon them, it's normally because they've sinned, but this time... They haven't seen. So, what's going on, God? I always hate missing the end of a movie. I don't know, you've had the experience, you know, the phone rings and you have to duck out. There's 15 minutes to go. You're just about to find out who's done it, or you're just about to get the movie resolved and find out whether or not the boy really does get the girl in the end, and you have to miss it. It's a bit unfulfilling, isn't it, to have watched that first hour and three quarters of the movie, but you don't actually get the answer in the end. And I think this psalm is a little bit like that as well. That it's a bit unsatisfying. We've heard all of the questions that he wants to ask. He's made a pretty clear argument, but we don't get any answers. It doesn't get resolved. The last part of this psalm seems to be missing. You want there to be one more paragraph where he nuts it through and figures it all out or or where God speaks and says, yes, but... But we don't have that. And that makes this psalm just a little bit frustrating. There's a couple of glimpses of an answer in the psalm itself. Uh, Have a look at verse number 22. The writer says... Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So he touches on something quite significant there, doesn't he? He actually gets this glimpse of the big picture, that it's not just about them, it's actually about God. It's for God's sake that they are doing these things. Israel exists because God is gracious. Israel exists, for God's sake. Not for their sake. They exist for God's sake. So when Israel go in to do battle, it's essentially the enemies of God that they're doing battle with, not just Israel's enemies. This time they've walked away beaten and scarred from the battle and as the writer says, it's for your sake, God, that we do this. It's for your sake that we face these battles. Maybe they shouldn't see their suffering or their defeat in this battle as punishment. Maybe they should just see it as a battle scar. Maybe something that they should be, be proud of. That God has done this for them. That God has allowed this to happen. They've sought to be faithful to God, but this time it's cost them. This time it has been costly the writer has glimpsed that maybe it's for God's sake that this has actually happened. But it's not just about them, but it's about being God's people, about suffering for God's sake. So there's another little glimpse that we get in here as well. The writer talks about God's unfailing love. Go to the, the last couple of verses, verses 25 and 26. We are brought down to dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. It's interesting, isn't it, that even in the face of all of this, the writer can actually still talk about God's unfailing love. But he knows that God hasn't failed them, that that's not what this is about. This is a psalm where he gets... No clear answer to why these things have happened. No clear answer to why they're suffering. But one thing he knows that he can rely on is God's unfailing love. They've got the whole of their history that they can look back on where they can see God's unfailing love. And the writer wants to count on it again. Can I get you to turn in the Bible to Romans chapter 8? This is the only place in the Bible where this psalm actually gets quoted. And it's interesting to see the way that it is quoted because I think it can actually help us to understand something in the psalm. It helps to give a bit of an answer to what we see in the psalm. So Romans chapter 8, and just to give you a bit of context, go to verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. This is what it says. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, Paul's talking about the fact that Christians are sometimes going to suffer. Uh, and it's almost part of their relationship with God. I mean, the New Testament's full of passages that talk about Christian suffering. Jesus said you shouldn't be surprised if you do suffer. Following me will sometimes be costly. And why is that? Well, Jesus says, if you're serious about walking with me, then sometimes you're actually going to be out of step with the rest of the world. Sometimes it won't be an easy walk. Loyalty to Jesus may have a cost. But look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And why can he say that? Well, because he knows all about God's unfailing love, doesn't he? I mean, the writer of the psalm could talk about God's unfailing love. He could talk about it a thousand years before Jesus. But we know more about God's unfailing love than the writer of the psalm, don't we? because we know what it is that God has done for us through the death of his son on the cross. We know the full extent of God's unfailing love. Jump down to verse 35 in Romans chapter 8. This is where the psalm gets quoted, and look at what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There it is. There's the quote from the psalm. Paul knew that loyalty to God would probably come at a cost. But he knew that that cost didn't even compare to what it was that God had in store for us. See, in the end, what Paul's saying is summed up very nicely in verse 30, from verse 37 onwards. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. No matter what hardships we might face, no matter what struggles we might have, no matter what difficulties we might face because of our relationship with God, Paul says we are more than conquerors. And verse 38... For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the writer of the psalm, the suffering had come as a result of serving God. And for the Apostle Paul, the suffering that he talks about comes as a result of being faithful to God. Can you think of times in your life where your loyalty to God has meant difficulty or hardship to you? Can you think of those times when following Jesus has meant that you are out of step with the world and you feel like you're out of step with the world? I know of people for whom... Following Jesus has meant losing their job, even losing their entire business. I know of people for whom following Jesus meant they didn't get that promotion at work. I know of people for whom being a Christian meant that their family would no longer talk to them or deal with them. See, if we find ourselves facing that kind of hardship, if we find ourselves in those tough circumstances, then we need to remember what Paul says there in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we need to remember what he goes on to say. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We know God's unfailing love we know that nothing that happens in this life can separate us from that love. And that should give us the confidence to press on, shouldn't it? It should give us the confidence to keep going, the confidence to know that no matter what we face, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. They're great words there at the end of Romans 4, aren't they? Romans 8. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us.